<clears throat> Never cared much about persimmons. The impression I have from growing up in the South is persimmons are something you ought to avoid. So all of our talk and thinking about persimmons have required a major brain shift for me. Welcome to Longleaf Breeze. Beginners learning subsistence farming using three simple principles. Approaching but never reaching subsistence. It's got to be fun while we're doing it. And we don't make allness statements. And now, Lee and Amanda Borden. Thanks, Adrian, and welcome to our podcast of October 6, 2010. And today we'll be talking about persimmons. I agree <laughs> with you. I think in the South, because there's so many wild persimmon trees and if you ever happen to get a hold of a piece of fruit from one of those trees and stick it in your mouth, uh, let's just say it's kind of like getting a mouthful of alum. <laughs> it's not pleasant at yeah. all, and it's sort of a running joke among people in the country to persuade some unsuspecting soul that they need to taste a persimmon. Right. So you can see why we were a little surprised to, to taste the non-astringent variety, I believe is what they're These called. These are called oriental persimmons mm -hmm. that they sell at Petals from the Past in Jemison. And we had the most delightful visit with Dr. Arlie Powell as he walked in the orchard. It's not like it was just the two of us. It was a whole group of people who were following him around in the orchard. But we all learned about how they grow persimmons, and how we can grow persimmons, and it's just a lot of fun. Most importantly, we got to taste one of those oriental persimmons. and they Several, were, actually. Several, yes, and they were very good. They have a firm orange flesh. They tend to be seedless, although there are some circumstances that will cause them to have seeds in them, and... Um, they have what I would call a mildly sweet flavor. It's right. not bursting with sweetness. Yeah, it's very pleasant. So we're definitely interested in growing them. Not to mention they just look gorgeous on the trees. That orange fruit is so pretty. The, um, we're talking about this, of course, in connection with our orchard expansion, which we are planning to the uh, east of the barn here. And... I guess our expectation now is that we will trellis these. Mm -hmm. Trellis meaning either two or three lines of cable on four by four posts, and then we would tie the tree to those cables so that it can withstand high winds and protect the fruit. Yes. Uh, so we don't have to worry about branches breaking off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, Arlie Powell has made a believer of, of me, and I, I think of you too, about any tree that can be trellised, uh, that's a really good idea, especially if it tends to have large fruit, heavy exactly. fruit, uh, because the, the damage, the loss of a, of a major limb or branch on the tree uh, would, of course, mean loss of a good bit of your fruit production. So. And the experience that, our, that my brother Dave Gray has had would bear that out. He's had several nice branches of his fruit trees break off, we assume, in the wind. And he's lost a lot of fruit and he's lost a lot of tree um, mm -hmm. as a result of those branches breaking off. So I agree with you. He's made a believer of us and we're planning to trellis everything we can, basically. All right. About four to six trees, we're thinking, in terms yeah. of the number of persimmons, because there are two different varieties that 
that are available to actually three, but two that we would prefer. One is Fuyu, and the other one's Wasi Fuyu. So, um, and the, and that's Wasi W A S E Fuyu F U Y U. Right. Um, and the reason to have more than one variety is just to, I think the bearing, that there's a slightly different seasonality to their bearing. Exactly. The one of them bears a little bit ahead of the other. Let's see. The Wasi Fuyu bears a little sooner than, than the, the Fuyu. Fuyu. And yeah, so that's one reason. And of course, the reason to have four trees at least is that there is a type of blight that can hit persimmon trees. So that, we may lose a tree. Yeah. And, and so Arlie Powell says, suggests have more than one tree because if you can catch it, it's not necessarily going to transfer to the next tree. And um, you do have to be very careful in, with your pruning equipment. He talked about he always, I guess, sterilizes it from going from one tree to another because um, that's how you could transfer. Yeah, he has a soapy towel that yeah. he uses to wipe yeah. it off. So, so uh, But, again, once you've invested in planting these, if you've got three or four, or, or four or five, then um, if you lost one, it wouldn't be a disaster. And you might want to come back and replace that planting it, but... You know, let's say it's five Meanwhile, or six years. Meanwhile, you've got trees yeah. bearing. Yeah, so uh, it makes sense. Um, and we've also realized in this endeavor that we won't have the protection of the deer fence that we've erected anymore. So we need to figure out how to protect these bad boys <laughs> from deer. And my suggestion was that I sit up at the lodge, which overlooks the orchard, and um, at designated seasons, pick them off with a deer rifle, um, but I think that didn't sound like a good plan to you for some now, reason. Now that we know that deer often come at 2 in the morning to devastate your crop, uh, since we our, our wildlife camera captured That's that right. at 2 we in the morning. That's right. We know when they were there. Um, I don't have any desire to be up in the middle of the night or get up at dawn to try to find them or dusk. Not to mention, if you ever went out of town, if you're not around, um, you know, there are just all kinds of limiting factors. So I think we're looking at maybe an electric fence being the best idea. I Put think you're right. That's probably what we're going to end up doing, although both of us would love to avoid doing that because it creates a barrier to your guests uh, and to us, for that matter. Yeah. Um, we'd love to be able to just walk freely in and out of the orchard, but uh, knowing that we are perched here in the middle of the favorite hangout of deer for all over central Alabama, it would seem imprudent not yes. to do something um, to keep them yeah. at bay. And we don't anticipate that this will be totally effective, but if we can limit the damage with uh, an electric fence, then we will consider it worth right. the, the trouble. But we have a while to worry about that because right now we have a lot of, let's just say, redesigning the landscape out there to do before we can even think about. That certainly our is true. Fencing, and there are some things we can do in the short run by way of caging. But as we've talked about, I hate to spend a lot of time and energy on a solution that we're in the process of um, making unnecessary. So I, I guess. Both of us are thinking, whatever we do, let's just go ahead and whatever we think we're going to do eventually, let's go ahead and do it up front and do it right so we then won't have to reinvent the wheel. That's right. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, the compost pile? Because I know that last week you mentioned that you had 
relocated the old compost pile. We started a new one, and you've turned it and kept it watered. And With the expectation that we would be doing that for about six weeks, mm-hmm. and I came to the realization last week, very soon after we recorded the podcast, this compost is done. It's finished. It's amazing so how fast. It was a roughly two-week process from the time I moved it and started turning it until it was done. Of course, that's with the best of conditions. Lots and lots of heat, lots and lots of water. It had already had a chance to do a great deal of maturing and composting while it was in the, in the cage. Um, so we had everything going for us. But still, two weeks. That's incredible. Yeah. I know. And oh. good. It's very good. So, so how, how will we use yeah, it? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Well, of course, when we start planting things again, that would be one recommendation. And I fully expect we're going to um, end up supplementing uh, the ground around the azaleas with it. Yes, Perhaps they need the it. Perhaps the blueberries, certainly the muscadines. Most anywhere where we need a little extra fertility, we will be mm-hmm. sprinkling some compost. Wish we had about eight times as much, frankly. Yeah, but we're starting a new, we have a new compost uh, pile going, so. Started it the day we moved the old pile. Uh, that that night, we were putting compost in the new pile. Yeah. So, so we're doing what we can. We're doing our part. That's right. But it's interesting that we're talking about soil right now because last week, our Master Gardener class, last Thursday, focused on soil, which we needed to hear about. (laughs) And we found out why our soils here in the southeast tend to be less fertile than those in other areas of the country. It was interesting to hear our speaker. This is Dr. Charles Mitchell, who is the acknowledged guru of soil. He does not want to be called the dirt guy. Um, I don't blame him. (laughs) but he knows a great deal about soil, and he was describing how that works. We found that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, the acidity and what it does for us in terms, and and the fact that we don't, it's the size of the particles, really, is what it comes down to. We don't have, you know, particle size and clay versus... And what I remember from his lecture is that soil is constantly decomposing in the South because we don't ever get really, really cold. And because Mm -hmm. the soil is constantly decomposing, it's constantly off-gassing its nutrients, and therefore you don't save the nutrient value in the soil the way they do in the Midwest. You lose it. Right, right. You may have all the same nutrients passing through it, but they're gone by the time it's time to grow something. Right. Yeah, that's why the South as a whole, why our, I guess what I was jumping ahead to was thinking about why our little region where we are right now, Longleaf Breeze, has less fertile soil even than other parts of, than some parts of Alabama, not Which all. Which is upper coastal plain, and yeah. you're thinking because it has more sand. Yes, sandy okay. loam. Yeah. At least that's what we think our diagnosis will be. We actually, part of our class involves our turning in soil tests tomorrow. And you've already taken the soil test. so I have. Um, we don't know the verdict yet, but we will report that as soon as we know. Yeah, we uh, sampled in five zones. Uh, we took one sample from, and, and each sample requires at least 10 holes. So I've been building this up in my mind as a huge job. It turned out not to be that big a deal. You know, you just dig a little hole and 
put a little trowel full of soil in a bucket and move on and dig another hole and put a little trowel full and move on. And so the process didn't take me more than a couple of hours to do all five zones. It was not, not that big a deal. But we have uh, southwest veg hill, southeast veg hill, north veg hill, which is sort of the undifferentiated remainder of veg hill. Mm-hmm. And we've got the blueberries and the azaleas as a separate zone. And we've got the orchard as a separate zone. Um, the cost is $7 per test. And as master gardeners, we get two tests for free. Yeah, one each. Right. One each, right. And you have to pay for uh, shipping normally. But in this case, our extension agent, Mallory Kelly, is going to be driving to Auburn anyway. So she's going to be taking all our soil tests, everyone in the master gardener class. So we will avoid the shipping cost as well. So this so is the time to do this it. This was the time to yeah, do it. Exactly. Yeah, it really is. And I guess the reason I jumped ahead talking about the acidity, too, is that one of the factors we'll find out, one of the, the uh, components about our soil is the um, pH. And we're thinking if we have a good bit of acidity, great news for the blueberries and the azaleas. Because but they then like, we will have to do something to, yeah, because they do like acid They like soil. acid, You're right. yeah, yeah. But for the majority of the things we're growing, they really like a more alcohol. Well, they like a less acidic. We'll be doing some liming. Soil. I have a feeling. Yeah. So we will probably be adding some lime to bring the pH up slightly. But that's a guess. We won't know until we get won't the test for back. Sure. And, that's right. And make our decision then. Um, but back to this issue about the low fertility in the soil. What you and I have, um, the, the strategy we've decided on, which we talked over with Dr. Mitchell, mm-hmm. is, well, can't we take this problem and turn it into an opportunity? Because the soil is active 12 months of the year, why can't we keep something growing 12 months out of the year and therefore maintain more of the soil's fertility? And he was excited about that. You know, he said, yeah, that's exactly what we need to be doing is keep something growing 12 months of the year. So you and I are now, um, I guess, uh, more or less committed to that plan to keep something growing. And that, that something might be cover crop. I mean, it's not necessarily going to be be cover crop. Yeah. It's not going to be, you know, I mean, I'll, I'd like to have some radishes out there in December, but you know, we can't guarantee we'll have anything We'll have food crops out there is what I'm saying. We're trying. Exactly. <laughs> I planted some, well, but we'll you know, see. It, it's been interesting to see how this has evolved. We started out with the thought that we needed to have a quarter to a third of an acre under cultivation. And now we're sort of backing off that and realizing we can, we can perhaps have better results by using a smaller portion of Veg Hill, which frees up the remainder of the veg hill, whatever's not being used that year, to stay under cover crop throughout the summer, throughout the growing mm-hmm. season, yeah. which is a nice advantage. A lot of people can't do that because they've right. got to be growing on it all year round. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got to be growing on it every year. Uh, but you and I have that luxury, and uh, hey, no reason we can't use that to our advantage. That's right. I like I like having an advantage once in a while. That would be exactly, good. Exactly. Don't we, though? Yeah. Um want to talk a little bit about the work day we sp- we had at the extension learning garden 
and the treasures we brought back when we worked there. Yeah, we, um, well, a lot of it was food. <laughs> we actually brought home even more okra. We already had some, but <laughs> I fixed a nice big uh, bowl of okra or, or dish of okra and that some night. eggplant. Eggplant. That eggplant was good, and we got it plenty of that. Um, and uh, some little red peppers, hot peppers that I made pepper sauce out of. Yeah. Yeah. Excite me. Oh, yuppie, but yuppie. But I like pepper sauce. So. And I've never been a big pepper sauce fan, but I think you did the right thing because you have family members my who mother, love pepper sauce. That's right. My mother and my Uncle Clyde love it, so they will be getting some. If this, and it's not, I don't think this is going to be a surprise, so you don't have to keep it to yourself. You can go ahead and tell them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I got those and uh, a few banana peppers, even though we had some here. Nobody else wanted them, so... And we also got one planting, uh, Tardiva hydrangeas, so which I put out. They were just cuttings that we took that day. Um, but um, how well they'll do, I don't know. We've had the drought. I've tried to keep them watered, but um, we had to go out of town. I'm back now and looking at them and going, okay, not too good. But I'll do what I can. And planting that forced me to clean out that herb bed. I planted them over there by the yeah, it looks where the so herbs are, now. so it's, it needed to be done anyway. Um, so that's our plan, and we'll continue to be on the lookout for um, perennials like that, uh, like those hydrangeas that um, hopefully will uh, add to our um, ecosystem of attracting, where we can attract uh, some beneficials to come and flirt around with the blossoms. Um, on a sad note, we did have the return of the tomato hornworms out in our garden, so that is it's so just, discouraging. It is so discouraging. I just was on the verge of pulling those tomato plants up, but I didn't do and it. The temperatures have cooled. It's delightful to be outside at Longleaf Breeze. That you just could not ask for more pleasant weather, but it unfortunately has not been cold enough to discourage the flying the flying grasshoppers. So we're uh, yeah we're struggling with that and hoping that we can figure out a solution to it. And we may be able to learn something because our subject in tomorrow's Master Gardener course is insects. Yes. I am looking forward to hearing from the entomologist to find out about some of the bad guys and what we can do to combat them, hopefully organically, but at least being able to identify them and know, knowing something about their lifespan and their uh, their life and cycle. Their various stages yeah, of various their stages, development. Yeah. Um, who their predators are and the like. That will be helpful. So... Uh, we'll we'll look forward to that class tomorrow. It'll come in in a, a at a timely fashion for me. And we'll share with you as we know more about these uh, bugs with which we are struggling. One last thought: we are um, first. We're just in the beginning stages of trying to figure out how to deal with ants farming aphids. We have aphids eating our muscadines, and the ants are protecting them. They are keeping their predators away. So we're beginning to gather information about that, and we'll share it with you as we know more how to deal with it. So have a great week. We will look forward to visiting with you very soon. You've been listening to Longleaf Breeze with Lee and Amanda Borden. We'd love to hear from you. You can call the farm at 334-625-8682. Send email to letters at longleafbreeze.com. Or you can send us honest-to-goodness mail at P.O. Box 780-446, Tallahassee, Alabama, 36078. 
Visit us at longleafbreeze.com to learn more about the farm, to browse our archive, and to look over our planting database. You can also read the daily farm log, check in with Lee and Amanda, and talk with other listeners. That's longleafbreeze.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.